This episode is brought to you by the insurance agent I use for my own business, Doug Lynch, and his broker, Tracy Deerfelt, with the Nationwide Contractors Alliance. In the last year, I got to know Doug and Tracy as they were consulting for me on some questions I had for my own company. And after more than a decade in the business, I can confidently say I didn't even understand half the equation when it comes to general liability insurance. I'm confident actually that very few builders do. I had some big gaps in my understanding and even more in my coverage. Now this is a risk heavy business and you can't leave everything you've built. No pun intended to chance. Make sure you have good protection. Make sure you have reliable protection and make sure the agents you work with have your back. Doug and Tracy are by far the best I've found in the business or I wouldn't use them myself. They assessed my particular business, built me a customized plan around it, and now, of course, I sleep better at night as a result. Visit douglaslynch.com and nwcalliance.com to learn more about how insurance and other solutions can really work for builders. Before we get started, a quick shout out to two of our project partners, Ram Windows and Mila Appliances, both of whom we are using in our marquee project 3705 Kennelwood, which is our biggest, baddest boy that we have built to date. And I have been nothing but impressed with both of those companies quality windows that Ram is building and producing that we have now have installed on site is just uh, spectacular beyond my expectations. And same thing with Mila. I have been so thrilled to really start using them and incorporating them into our builds. Everybody I talk to about their appliances absolutely loves them. Our potential buyers we're talking to are all excited to know that those are the appliances we're putting in. So again, Ram Windows and Mila Appliances. Thank you both for your support and partnership. This episode is actually an article that I wrote for Building Optimal titled Value Buckets for Better Deal Structuring. If you want to read the written version, you can find it at buildingoptimal.com on our blog. Over my 15 years to date of structuring real estate development deals, I've screwed up many a deal. I've left money on the table. I've shouldered too much risk. But luckily, on close to 100 projects I've sponsored, I've only ever once lost money. The rest have performed well and a good many surprisingly well. So what's been the single biggest improvement I've made in how I structure my deals? Well, I've started thinking of the deal components as separate value buckets. And as a result, I have a much easier job identifying an equitable deal for everyone and easily selling it to my investors. So let's talk about exactly what value buckets are in a nutshell. To use value buckets, think of deal structuring as an accountant would. Each deal is a new company, in a sense, and that company will have assets, liabilities, and equity that each one of the parties to the deal should value at some notion of fair market value. 
Now this sounds basic, like a foregone conclusion, but many people miss the point. And when they start thinking of projects through value buckets, what seemed like a reasonable deal may no longer be. So here are a few of the more common quote unquote value buckets as I break them apart and label them in deals. So value bucket number one, the developer, the developer role. The developer finds, organizes, and sponsors the deal, right? He arranges all the capital and oversees professionals such as accountants, lawyers, etc. So the time, effort, and expertise in this role needs to be considered and compensated, usually as a percentage of the back-end profits. At least that's the way it works in the home building business. So for instance, my company receives 50% of the back-end profits in exchange for taking on this role. Now, value bucket number two, the general contractor. Home builders often play the role of developer, which we just discussed, and general contractor in a speculative deal, which is why I think it's important to distinguish these two. Home builder needs to understand what his profit would be on the project if, hypothetically speaking, it was a simple fee-based project for a client. Why? Because the additional role the builder is playing in a speculative project, plus that risk, should result in a higher projected income to the builder versus simply a project for a client on a fee basis. So I establish an upfront fee. Let me restate that. I establish upfront a fee between 7 to 8% of a deal's projected sale price depending on the size and complexity of the project. Now this fee is paid out to my company with the construction draws from the bank. This fee covers my company's overhead in the deal, but not my general contractor profit, which I defer to the end so that my investors and I are better aligned. The back-end profits I'm expecting to receive should be enough to account for both my role as general contractor and separately as the developer of the deal. If the projected profits aren't sufficient in that sense, I'll either restructure the deal or I'll pass on it. Value bucket number three, the investor or investors. The investor may be putting up all the cost of a deal or if financing is involved, the portion of equity that sits behind the debt in the capital stack. The investor obviously needs to get compensated for the risk they're taking with their investment. Our development projects are far less liquid and less diversified than one can achieve in the stock market, for instance, which means we should be paying a premium to investors over typical stock market returns for the added risk profile of our projects. Beyond that, there are a lot of other factors that determine what a fair market return is for your investor. If you're a brand new builder, you represent more risk than someone with decades of experience. You may need to be offering a little higher return, perhaps. Or if you're an experienced builder with many years and a great track record, vice versa. I structure my deals with investors like this. First, I offer an 8% simple annual preferred return on their investment to account for the opportunity cost of their capital. Then 
I split profits with them, usually 50-50. This profit split bucket represents their return for the extra risks I've mentioned above. If you notice both with my fee I charge for the project and the preferred return I offer investors, I'm structuring my deals such that we try to value and cover our respective costs first and then profits that we're going to split on top of those costs should be a more accurate representation of profitability. And I'll tell you all, if I see newbies make one mistake, they fail to account for the true cost of their overhead in the deal, and they end up having to pay for it with their supposed quote-unquote profit split at the end. And I made this mistake for my first several years, and I highly recommend that you uh, avoid that trap at all costs and you properly account for some cost of your, your overhead, some notion of what you feel like a true overhead cost is, should always be included in a project budget. Value bucket number four, credit enhancers, which sounds like a fancy term, I know. Um, banks usually get the credit enhancement that they need via personal loan guarantees. That's what I'm talking about when I call them credit enhancers. While this value bucket often gets blurred into others, it's necessary to break it out for a clean view of the landscape. Some deal sponsors, i.e. developers, offer additional profits for the people who assume this risk, while some others simply flat fees based on the loan amount. I personally ask all our, our partners to guarantee the loans we obtain, including myself. This way we spread the risk. I compensate my investors for this additional risk they assume via higher targeted returns. In other words, most of the projects I sponsor target IRRs, meaning internal rates of return in the low 20s or a little higher, depending on the specific deal. If I wasn't asking for loan guarantee support from my investors, I believe probably the high teens would be a fair return to target for them. And I would accomplish that by shifting the project splits whatever amount necessary to keep the target returns in that range. As a side note, when I'm sitting here talking about my returns, I want to make sure that you're clear that I use typical traditional bank fi financing on my projects, usually up to 70% of the project amount. So because I'm using leverage, it's natural that my investors' returns should be a little higher. If I was not using leverage and just financing my deals all cash, I would actually be offering my investors quite a bit less. All right, on to the, the last value bucket, value bucket number five, which I'm using as a catch-all and I'm calling other imputed equity. So what do I mean by other imputed equity? imputed equity. Well, sometimes we have a land seller who wants to sell us the land and roll in a portion of the price as investment into the deal. Or we have a broker, an architect, or an engineer that wants to do the same. This gets messy, so the best way to think about it is to always determine a fair market value for the land or service or whatever is being uh, invested or imputed 
assuming that they would be getting their money up front per usual normal terms. Then the amount from that value that they want to defer or invest into the project can be considered and adjusted to reflect for the value they are providing by imputing or investing that money into the project. And remember, if they are deferring that amount, it should probably receive some return in exchange. So to wrap this up, those are the typical value buckets as I see them. They're just a general framework and they can always be amended as necessary. Seeing the individual components of a deal, the assets and liabilities, as I mentioned in the beginning, helps create a much clearer baseline from which to structure and negotiate. And whatever you decide is fair between you and your investor, um, that's between you guys, but having these value buckets and general reference points of fair market value for each component is going to take you 90% of the way. <laughs>